I also greet you in the name of the Lord. It's good to see everybody here this morning. And we will be in um, 2 Corinthians. Let's see. I'm going to read. Well, just turn to the first chapter. I'll read those verses in just a second. Um, But I can't resist to share something I read on the news. Perhaps you read it. And I don't usually share these kind of tidbits. But it was very interesting. So on uh, Fox News, I read a little story, I think it was yesterday, about a man who dives for lobsters in Massachusetts. And he had his gear on, his scuba gear. He was diving for lobsters in Massachusetts. And lo and behold, he got swallowed by a whale. Now, I know the Bible says big fish, but this is not a joke. Everybody's kind of looking at me like, where's the punchline? This, this is... What I read, he got swallowed by a humpback whale and uh, lived to tell about it. He said he was in there for about 30 seconds in the mouth and he had bruises and a few scrapes, but no crushed bones. He was able to survive, he said, because I had my oxygen with me. And he they had a picture of him in the hospital bed like this. I just found that kind of interesting since it somewhat coincides. One of the things that a lot of people critique the Bible about is the idea that uh, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish and then spit out. And this guy said, well, I was swallowed and I was spit out. So there you have it. We live in biblical times. Well, we have uh, transitioned back into our study of 2 Corinthians. And I had shared with you that I'd like to just, rather than pick up where we left off and we laid it to the side because of the pandemic. And a lot of us were not able to join us here. But now that we're back as a family, praise God for that. We want to dig back into this book. And I wanted to take just two sermons to get us back up to speed in chapter 2. So the next time we preach, it will be new material. But I want to share two things with you this morning in order to properly understand the book of 2 Corinthians. We don't want to just dive into it because this book is about a lot about Paul's personal life. He shares more about his personal life in this book than probably any other epistle. And yet that's the sweetness of it. That's what we can glean from is what Paul shares about God and how God interacts in his life, about his mission, about his greatest joys and his greatest sufferings. We also want to understand the, the church that Paul's writing to. That's also important. Why is he writing certain things to these people? Now, what's their problem? What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? And every church, our church, we have strengths and weaknesses. And I would imagine if one of the apostles were alive today, they would be able to come in here and evaluate things and, and have a few things to share with us uh, as far as pros and cons. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. So I want to look a little bit about, talk a little bit about Corinth. And then I want to share a a portion of Scripture that I have shared previously. As I prayed, God, what, what do we need? I don't want to take a lot of time, but what do we need to hear where we are today? uh, In regards to what the ground that we've already covered. So out of all these scriptures and passages, what do we need to hear today? And that's what we're going to land on. And it's a message on setting your hope on God. 
the Apostle Paul went through a trial, a time in his life, and you would think, well, of course he sets his hope on God, but this one was extraordinary. And he even shares with us why it happened. We don't always get wise in life. Sometimes God just does things, and we, we don't know. We wonder. We scratch our heads. We may not know until eternity comes. But in this particular instance, we know. And so I want to just drive that home because it's so clear for us. But for time's sake, I'm not going to read all the way up to chapter 2, verse 4, which is where we left off. I I originally planned on doing that. But for time's sake, I just want to read the first two verses for now to introduce it. And then we'll get into our passage a little bit later. But 2 Corinthians 1.1, the apostle says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that we've already covered. Let me just, I'm not going to cover them, but by telling you what I'm not going to cover, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about what we're missing out on. But I'm not going to cover the lost letters. If you've studied this book, you will know that the Apostle Paul wrote more than just the two that we have. And many scholars believe three, possibly even four. By God's providence, in the book of canon, we only have the two. But I'm not going to talk about that whole ordeal about the lost letters. I'm not going to talk about the beautiful teaching in here about having a clean conscience, what a conscience is how you get a clean conscience, how it operates in your life. I'm not going to talk about the uh, visit that never happened. Paul planned a visit. We're skipping over that. He planned a visit, and in here he offers a reason uh, why he didn't go. And he had written a very severe letter previously, and he just thought it was too soon to show up again in person. He wanted to give the Lord some time to work in their lives to sanctify them. He didn't want to intimidate them, so that was the visit, the planned visit that never happened. Uh, There's a lot in this first chapter about God's comfort. There are verses in here that I use at almost every funeral service that I do because God is a God of all comfort, and He comforts us in our greatest times of need. I'm not going to cover that. Here's what I am going to talk about. The Church of Corinth and then Paul's struggle and how he learned to set his hope in God. You've already, I've already shared much about the church of Corinth, but I just want to kind of go down a little bit of a different avenue this morning. This church was what we would consider a tough sell for the gospel, if you will. I mean, there are, there are societies, there are communities um, that are not hard. People, missionaries or evangelists, they go into certain cultures or societies And God just harvests. And there are societies and cultures that are difficult for a variety of reasons. Corinth was, in my opinion, a tough sell because of its lewdness, because of the the great freedoms that they took in their lifestyle of sin. And the Greek word to Corinthianize literally means lewd acts, immorality. So it's kind of like the city of bad habits. You have to really, if you, if you want to live a pure life, you'd have to really be careful visiting that city. There's cities like that in our 
country. That just there's just uh, a tremendous amount of temptation and pull. And so they were known for this. In fact, uh, that that was their reputation. And the word Corinthianized literally means to go to bed with a prostitute. And in this city, there were lots, there were hundreds, if not thousands of temple priestesses that played the harlot. So they had a reputation for these things. So Paul, the missionary, the apostle commissioned by God to take the gospel where it had not been preached. Uh, He does go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He goes into this city. And this would be a city where you would think, there's no way in the world anybody's going to believe in Christ in this city. But he goes into this city and he stays there approximately a year and a half. And by his labors and through the power of God, lives were being changed. Now, here's why I want to revisit this. Because every time I go back to this book, I just am amazed at the power of the gospel. When you think about how closed off cultures can be, how unlikely it is that individuals or societies would have any desire to change their ways and believe in the God of Scripture, it just blows my mind. And so I am re-amazed, if you will, because I've been in this book for a while now. But every time I come to it, I'm, I'm like, how could this happen? How can one man go into a culture that has no incentive to believe in the gospel, to believe in another God, at least from what the eye can see, and yet lives are being changed? And I want, that's why I want to spend a short time thinking about this, because I want us to be amazed and encouraged at the power of the gospel and what God can do through disciples, through individuals that are willing to put ourselves under his instruction and willing to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. So he comes into this city who is already practicing many of the things that Scripture says no to. So he comes in and basically says, part of the, the message is, well, you're doing this, but now you can't. And I just think, where's the incentive in believing in this kind of God who's going to tell you that you can no longer do the things that you may be taking great pleasure in? You may not. You might just be doing them out of habit or peer pressure or whatever. But he says, um, no, actually, uh, in order to follow this God, you have to say no to these things. But then you, you can say yes to these things regarding behavior and regarding belief. And keep in mind that because this city was so wicked, it was multicultural, by the way. It was, a, it was a very frequented city for traveling. And that was one of the reasons for introduction of all different kinds of sins. But um, there was little incentive because they had, with their pagan gods and their pagan lifestyles, they seemingly had about a free, free a life as you could live. I mean, they just kind of, all the things they like to say yes to, God says no to. So you can imagine some of the writings when we get into these letters, some of the things that Paul will say to such a group of people that are used to this kind of living. So it would seem like they are liberated because our understanding 
even today, of what it means to be truly free as a human is to be liberated completely with absolutely no restraints. We talk a little bit about that in our worldview and our Beautiful Things series out of Psalms. Right now, humanity, literally, and it's been going on, but we have people, we're, we're trying to understand who we are. Like, we're, we're, we lost ourselves. I think last time I said, uh, one of the philosophers said God is dead, and when God dies, man dies with him, because who are we? Why are we here without an authority to tell us? And so today we are in this, this terrible, desperate search. People in, in despair. Who am I? How do, how do I express myself? How do I make myself known? How can you know me? And we are trying to express ourselves through our, our feelings of sexualization. That's just what, where our culture is now. So you would think, well, a culture that has these kind of freedoms... Uh, things that are forbidden, perhaps, in our culture, why would they have any incentive to listen to a message that literally challenges the way they think and the way they act? You know, Jesus came into a world, the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God comes into the kingdom of man, if you will, with the good news, but the bad news is, Jesus, in essence, said to people, uh, you're not liberated as you think you are. You're actually in bondage. The, the sins that you feel so free to practice, they enslave you, don't they? And he begins to speak to the heart and the people realize, well, yeah, actually, I can't stop it and I want to. And so he has this message and you're, you're, you are under, it's like a, a spellbinding power that you're under. You've been s- deceived regarding your identity, your meaning, and your purpose, and you're living wrongly. And I am here as the true king. I'm here with the true words that liberate. I am the one and only true God. And when you trust in me and live for me, you will find that you are truly liberated. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that it is so contrary in, er- in every generation, but we're so selfish today that it's, I think, especially in ours, where our, our um, atmosphere or pressure is to do, make everything about yourself. Like we are such an inward culture, like never before has the world seen. We used to be an outward culture, but we are such an inward culture. And then, the, so it's all about me and I, And Jesus says, actually, that's not how you actualize yourself or realize yourself. It's by giving. It's it's not by preserving. It's by giving your life. It's by losing your life. It's by dying. So you see how these messages clash? And when we take the gospel to somebody, we share the gospel, understand that There's the world's way of thinking, whether it's a false god or even atheism. And then there's the one way, the kingdom way. And something's going to give. Either somebody's going to embrace Christ or they're going to reject Christ and, and stay. But there's really only... The gospel gives man two ultimatums. I mean, there's, there's only two camps. And in the end, he calls them the sheep and the goats. There's a division there. And it has to do with this. So I look at Paul's situation... You know, the early church, the gospel's just getting out. 
still relatively new, making great headway in, in some ways. Uh, many of their own people, the Jews, rejected the gospel, but that was God's plan to bring it to the Gentiles. And so here he goes. And I bring this up because I think in our culture, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to learn to lose sight about just how powerful the gospel is. Now, and so understand that the Apostle Paul, a disciple of Christ, who believes the, the uh, not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. That's the conviction he carries with himself. And he goes in and he just shares in obedience the gospel message. And it, in my human thinking, I think it's not going to go where, anywhere it's going to fall flat. Now, today, I confess a lack of faith because I look at the world, even our churches that have become more worldly, and I, I just lose heart. And I think nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear this. It's, it's, it's provocation. And that is wrong thinking. Because I just made it about myself. I just determined for God the power of his word. And when, when we obey him by sharing the gospel or even in our examples of living for Christ in discipleship, there is power in that that we lose sight of, that we don't, we don't know what God is doing. So for Paul to go into this city of Ludax and plant a church there, a vibrant church, is a miracle because it took the power of God to change hearts. When we, in our weakness, in our frailty, are willing to share the gospel, it's based on the power of the message, not so much the messenger. And so we want to be encouraged and amazed at what God's word can do. And our culture is no less difficult than the cultures that have already been breached with the gospel through the centuries. So the whole purpose of revisiting this is to be encouraged and amazed at what the gospel message can do because it is the power of God and to not lose heart. God goes before us. He goes with us and he goes after us. And what that means is sometimes when we are so nervous or wondering about, does this person want to hear the gospel? How should I share it? Understand that it's, it's not necessarily just that one moment. It's very possible that God has already gone before you. That's how people get saved. It's the grace of God. He's already gone before you to prepare hearts. Not every heart. Now, when we went to, I think it's, I'm terrible with time, but it's probably been over 10 years ago. A team from this church went to Guatemala. And we did a variety of things, but we went to this one town uh, called La Papesca. And we were there to go from, it's a village, village type town to go from house to house or really hut to hut. It had both. And share the gospel, do VBS type, work with the children, uh, hand out food. Before we got there, the Hope of Life ministry had to visit the town and, and the town elders um, to let them know, basically to get permission. Can we come in? Uh, we got a group of America, Americanos. They want to come in here and they want to bless you, give you food. They want to teach you about Jesus. So they had to get permission. Uh, in this town were also some drug lords. So there were people toting guns and... Uh, it wasn't completely safe. You kind of needed an invitation. But we had the invitation. And so we were divided into teams. And um, I went into one of the first huts I went into. 
I asked the uh, middle-aged lady, and the, and the family was kind of gathered in one little dark room there, and it was a hut, like kind of a shack hut type. And I just, one of the things I said is, uh, do you know why we're here? Because we kind of infiltrated this whole village. There were teams everywhere. And she just so sweetly and humbly said, to teach us about God. And I just thought, like God went before us. And I know that Hope of Life had to get permission, but, but it doesn't have to go that way. And God blessed that trip. People got saved. People rededicated their lives. The churches filled back up. There was two, two churches and two pastors. And I was just amazed that the people were like, uh, in, thinking in their heads, well, people are coming to tell us about God. I guess I better listen what God has to say. So God goes before us. God was with us. And God follows behind us. So if you were to go to that town today, I think it's safe to say that you would receive a warm welcome. I haven't been there in a long time. But it hadn't been so long before another team went, they received a warm welcome. So be amazed and encouraged, re-encouraged at the power of the gospel. Don't let the wickedness of the world discourage you in sharing and discourage you in living out the truth because that's exactly what we are doing. So, I just want us to be amazed at what the gospel did through Paul and what the gospel can do through us as we submit ourselves to it and live obediently before the Lord. Difficulty, you know, Paul was called to go where the gospel wasn't preached. That was his conviction. It wasn't that he was called to go to hard places or easy places. That wasn't the issue. If it was easy, great. If it was hard, so be it. He obeyed the Lord with his commission, which was also the Lord said, I'll show him how much you'll have to suffer for me. And the Apostle Paul did suffer as he gave himself. So in this personal letter, he's teaching us how to be a disciple, uh, primarily by observation. We listen to his life. And that brings me to my second point. One way that Paul lived out his calling was by setting his hope in God alone. And so, is your hope this morning set in God alone? Maybe the Lord will teach us that as we look at this passage. Let's look at verse 8. The apostle says to this church, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now this is very uh, obviously a very personal moment. And the Apostle Paul, you know, there's some details about testimonies and things they are important, some things that are, are not important. But in his heart, he realizes, 
I need to share more of myself. I need to share more of what I experienced uh, so people will know what God can do. People will know that God is there when we might not think He's there. And so He shares this very personable testimony. We don't want you to be in the dark about this. You need to know about this. And because they need to know, we need to know as modern-day believers about this. Now, the Corinthians, I'm sure they knew he suffered. They probably heard bits and pieces of what had happened. I'm sure they, they likely prayed for him during this time of suffering. Even in ancient times, word would get around. But they didn't know the degree. And so he says, we don't want you to be unaware. He uses that phrase six times. It's important that you have adequate information. It's important to you to know about what I've been through, but also to know what kind of God you serve. You see, your God is the God of the unbearable. And a lot of times, even as believers, we don't know God to the extent that we could possibly know God because we've never been here. We've never been tested or tried. I've been tested or tried when we lost uh, our fourth child. God took Lisa and I and our family to a place I have never been. I've never experienced that. It's, it's a grueling thing. It's, it's heart-wrenching. And I can tell you that God was there. He was no less real. He was more real than here in this terrible place than he was before any of this ever happened. And I think it's important for us to know as believers because we will, sooner or later, most of us, we're going to experience what we consider terrible hardship. Terrible hardship is somewhat of a relative term. For you, uh, we learned that. There There were kids in the hospital that had a broken bone. And for their parents, that was a terrible hardship. They couldn't imagine enduring such a thing, whereas other little infants were on life support. So it's all important to us. But we, what is the most important thing for believers is that God is the God of the unbearable. I think it's interesting. Here we are coming out of a pandemic, at least we are here in America, other places are still suffering. And some would have cons- some considered, boy, this was just like an unbearable time. It was, it was chaotic. It tested humanity in ways at least our generation has never been tested. It turned some people against each other. Based on their view of science, based on their view of health, based on their view of scriptural consideration, people came out on different sides with this pandemic. Life as we knew it changed for the worse, uh, death, uh, some lived under the fear of death of this plague or the fear of losing loved ones. Relationships were strained for many. Finances were strained. Careers were challenged, perhaps even changed as a ro- result of this pandemic. Uh, freedoms were taken. I think, in t- at least for some, there was a loss in trust in science and leaders And medicine, because we heard all different kind of uh, instructions and things to do, how we're going to get through this, different time frames. A a lot of our leaders and authorities were changing their mind about things. 
And there was a lot of suffering. There's child development suffered. Education suffered. Uh, people were, were mental health, mental health issues were abundant. There were more suicide attempts during this time. And I would venture to say we still haven't, we haven't finished experiencing the negative outcome of this pandemic. There will be things that will continue to arise. For many, it seems unbearable. What does Paul mean by unbearable? Well, he means that basically everything I had at one point to give physically and everything that I had mustered up to give mentally was just gone. I had nothing left. He and his team were crushed to the point of depression, you might say. And this is very rare for Paul. As you know enough about Paul that this guy was always upbeat, always kept his eyes on the Lord, saw the best, was able to see how God was working even in times of darkness. He, he was the kind of guy who would take every thought obedience, uh, every thought to the captive to the obedience of Christ. But he did not have even the strength to do that during this time of, of torture if you will. It's a a brutal season of suffering. And in essence, he's saying, look, you need to know, I had nothing. I had nothing to give. But you also need to know, as followers of the Lord, that there's like this really big place in God's kingdom for those who feel like I have nothing left. And that might be Many of us at any given time. There's this beautiful place. There's lots of room in the kingdom of God for people that experience these things or feel this way. Paul was tough. He was, he was courageous. He was bold. Uh, he, had, he knows what it's like to bleed for Christ. He knows what it's like to be bloodied, to be bruised, to be abandoned by people that he thought he could trust in, to carry the burdens of ministry, to be left for dead, to, to, to be put in prison even though he was innocent. About every bad thing that could happen to people, he understood it and he just pressed on. He ignored the pain. He trusted in the Lord, whatever. I got a job to do. And, but here he's saying, what I don't want you to be unaware of is uh, that was not me during this time. I lost it. And he says something that he has never uttered before as he shuts down. Uh, It was despair. Utterly destitute of measures or resources. That's how he felt. Nothing's coming. That word for despair there uh, also is from the root word porous. Like our pores, it means to, to pass through. It's a passageway. And so what he's saying is, I I was at a place where no matter what direction I looked, up, down, around, right, or left, there was no way out. I didn't see any way out of this. And all the other times I followed the Lord and there was like this way out. He'd send an angel or whatever. But I was of the mindset that there was no way out. Indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He only uses that here. It's an official terminology. It's like a death certificate. So he, he's saying, I was so low that it was as if God had sanded, handed me over to Satan to take my body to, 
to, for the effect of sin to come upon my body to hand the, the grim reaper to hand me the death certificate. That's how low he was during this time. And then it comes. It comes. And in this passage, we get this perspicuous uh, personal application of why sometimes these things happen. Why would he have to go through this? And we don't have all the answers, but he says his own words, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, that tells us right there how important it is to God that we rely on him and not ourselves. He gives us things. He blesses us. He gives us strength. He gives us wisdom, knowledge, sometimes supernaturally. And yet we're not to depend on those things because depending on those things is dangerous. It's not kingdom living. It's not the way it's meant to be. We were created for God and God alone. And it just honestly boggles my mind that this wonderful servant of God would have to suffer through these things for whatever providential reason to learn this lesson. He says, I get it. I I see this. Turns out God was teaching us, me and my team, a lesson. You know why you were brought down to nothing? It's because you're not supposed to trust in those things that you lost. You never lose God. You never lose the power of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the presence of God. That's always there for you in abundance. And that's what your life is all about from beginning to end. How good of Paul to share that personal life moment. You know, God, guys, we can't trust in ourselves. We have to trust in God. What does that mean for you this morning? What What are the things that we rely upon, we're strong at, we're good at? Maybe even our spiritual gifts that God gave us. Where are we in relation to these things as opposed to, I'm good at this, but I shouldn't trust myself or I shouldn't rely, I should say. But my reliance should always be on God because God gives and takes away. Ask Job. Boy, did he bless him. And boy, did he deplete him. And what did he have in the end? My Redeemer lives. There's these important lessons. They're important to God. We may avoid them, but they are so important to God. So this is at least one of the many purposes of trials. Learn to trust in the right person and the right resource. So the stuff about self-confidence, where does that come into play? What do you do when you get to a place where you've always been able to get out? You're so proficient, you know, and and doesn't matter what comes my way, I'll find a way out. And then you you can't find a way out. Then what? God wants you to know that was his. It was him all along. All along, it was God helping you through life, the good times, the bad, and and in the end. Since Paul had nothing to give, I mean, if this is true, and he literally, his thought life was shot, his his physical energy was shot, his spiritual strength was shot. If it's true, and yet God delivered him, then when it comes to our walk, how much does God really need our strength? How much does he really need our happy thoughts and our willpower and determination? Is, is the weakness that we have going to stop kingdom work? Or 
do we find that it actually be, might be exactly what we need to be bolder in our kingdom work because we've shed ourselves of relying on the wrong things. This is like profound teaching here. You see it in Habakkuk, and Corky brought this to our attention, pre-pandemic. It's, it's a powerful passage, and it begins in chapter 1. And Habakkuk, he says, Lord, how long should I cry for help? You're not even hearing me. Or cry to you, violence, and you're not saving us. It's the world, my little community right now, my speck of the world, it's a terrible place, and I can't live here. And I have faith in you, and I believe in you, and I've been crying out to you for deliverance, and what do you do? You remain silent. And so how long is this going to happen? Because it is unbearable. But then he gets to get it. He, he, gets to, he thinks about it, and he says, by the time he gets in chapter 3, here's his conclusion. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. So, he says, I get it. Even though I don't have these things, God's teaching me to trust in Him, with or without. He is the God. He's the provider. He doesn't even need fruit on the trees to provide for His people. He makes a way. So, God is the God of salvation. And the message is, when things, you know, they're unbearable, things aren't going our way. seems the whole world's going to pot, we often say. And the message of Scripture is, mm-hmm, that's really happening. Trust me, it's not about you. When you think that things ought to go this way, but they go the opposite way, trust God. And you pray for rain, and you, I mean, you pray for sun and you get rain. Trust God. When you look for love and you get hate, trust God. You look for peace and what comes your way but nothing but enemies. You trust God. When you're hoping to step up financially in life, be able to provide for yourself a little better, next thing you know you just lost, you trust God. When you're looking and hoping for and trusting in fertility and you get barrenness, as many in the scriptures, we trust God. And we often look for health, and what do we get? Sickness. What do we do with that as disciples? We trust God. That's what He wants. It's what brings Him the greatest pleasure. And, honestly, it turns out to be the most freeing for us. Because when we depend on our performance, our abilities... And we think the balance of life or the balance of somebody's soul is relying upon my ability to share the gospel or my ability to live this certain way, say the perfect thing. My ability to preach the perfect sermon that will just change everybody's life in here all at once. That defeats the purpose. The freedom comes in. I rely on God. He gives me what I have. He takes away. I rely on God. I trust on God. in God. It is His plan. I am clinging to you. 
So I close with two illustrations, and I've mentioned both of these before, but I, uh, they serve us well. So if you are taking lessons, you're being, in, you're being trained to be a lifeguard, what do they teach you about saving people that are drowning? You've heard this before, and you probably know this. You don't rush in right away to save them. Why? Because they have too much life left. They have too much fight left, and they feel desperate. And a desperate person that's drowning is going to hold on to anything that's there to save their lives, and that will be you, and they can push you down, and you may be the one that winds, winds up drowning. It happens in real life. So they say, wait a little while until they lose some of their energy, lose some of their fight. That's your moment. When they're no longer fighting against you, but they've expended all their energy and all they can do is be saved, then you go and you swim to them and you pull them out of the water. You see, and sometimes uh, in our lives, God might be waiting for that last slap on the water, that last little gurgle or cry for help before He comes in and saves us and delivers us wherever it is that He intends to take us. It's a kingdom principle. Our next breath comes from God. Why? So that we'll just set our hope on Him. Set our hope on God. That's our realization. So one more illustration. Uh, there was a guy who worked commercial construction, building a great big high-rise building. And because they were behind schedule, they had to work 24 hours around the clock. He was on the night shift. They had lots of construction lights out there, but there were still places. You know, it's pitch dark. There were still places you couldn't see. There was lots of activity, lots of machinery going, power tools, motors. You know how noisy construction sites are. He's working way up in the air at the very top, near the wall, the edge of the wall, and he slips. And so there he is, grabbing onto the top ledge of the wall, pitch dark. He's several stories in the air. He's hanging on for dear life. He's crying out, please help me, somebody come over here and help me. But there's so much noise going on, nobody hears him. And after uh, about 30, 40 minutes, he starts losing his strength. And he realizes to himself, I've given all I have to give, and I cannot hang on any longer. I've cried for help. Nobody's coming. And so the only thing he can do is to let go. So the last little bit of strength he has, he lets go. And he falls. Three inches. Because in the darkness, what he didn't see was there was a scaffolding right below We don't always know what God is up to. But there will be times in our lives if you haven't already experienced it. And I know many of you have already been through this. Where you will have nothing. And God wants you to know that He is the God of the unbearable. And that is a perfect time to take our nothing 
to Him and turn it into abundant trust. May God bless the preaching of His Word.